Hello, hello, and welcome to episode two of John Doe & Co, Tales of True Crime. If this is your first episode, lovely to meet you. I am Aidan, and I'll be knocking around your eardrums for the next bunch of minutes. Please do go and listen to the first episode. I've had at least several people say it was adequate, so please join them. So, I'm not really covering something true crimey this episode. I know, right, sod the name, I'm going rogue. I'm actually into all things seemingly balmy to ordinary folks, so you'll see all sorts pop up in this show. Just depends what I'm currently obsessed with. So with that in mind, let's talk about the Rendlesham Forest Incident. To the unlearned ear, this may sound like a slight vehicular mishap on a stretch of road near some trees, but no, 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 my friends, this is aliens. Or is it? Well, that's a contentious subject, but I'm going to come clean right off the bat. I do enjoy indulging the strangest stories out there, so whilst I will detail the different takes on the matter, I am partial to little green men theories, it's just more fun. That, and I have actually had my own experience with extraterrestrials. Lucky you, you're getting Rendlesham and my own experience told to you. Sound the bonus klaxon. I won't go into crazy detail with my story, the episode isn't called Bloody Hell There's a Spaceship in the Park, but hey, you might well find it interesting. It was just over seven years ago, maybe around Christmas 2013, early 2014, and I was walking back from the local cinema with my partner at the time. Whilst we were young, we enjoyed challenging ourselves with cerebral, visceral viewing, so we were returning from watching Anchorman 2, The Legend Continues. We had walked this route many, many times from this town centre back to where we lived and it being 10pm really didn't bother us. The scariest thing to happen to our town was the Zumba craze gripping the local populace at the time. We chatted as we walked by the large park, a rolling green with a golf course and lake close to the house. There was no one around, just us two. As we neared the house, I glanced over the park towards the trees by the lake. It was a really nice view so we would often take our time and amble along. That's when I saw it. I say, sacred faecal spheres, what is that contraption over yonder? With fewer and more abrasive verbage. Looming over the tree line was a massive... ship. I guess that's the word for it. It wasn't your classic saucer or triangle or anything like that. The way I describe it now is like a skyscraper floating horizontally. Because that's the other thing, it was blooming massive. My partner immediately began panicking. She was completely bewildered at what we were seeing. I sort of was laughing in shock and awe and completely amazed the whole street hadn't noticed this leviathan in the sky. I wanted to go closer, obviously. Perhaps it's just me and my morbid ways, but in my head I was just like, abducted by aliens is a way to go and I'm okay with that. Sod peacefully in bed with my family around me singing hymns, I want to get beamed up. Maybe I get to become a real-life Star-Lord, maybe I just get turned into a human smoothie. Either way, it's fine with me that I'm becoming a future episode of Unsolved Mysteries. My partner is freaking out. She starts crying and is demanding we go home. We're both people with our heads screwed on, her more so than me, but you know, we didn't drink or anything and we were both seeing this craft. We rush home and immediately her parents are asking what has happened as their daughter is hysterical. We tell them what we saw and all rush out and it's gone. No sign of anything. Gone. For something that size to quickly and silently move away in less than two to three minutes is mind-boggling. We spend the next few days talking about it and pondering what we saw. Then we sort of forgot. 
it sounds crazy, but yeah, I just sort of stopped thinking about it. You know, I went to university, tried to start my career, went through relationship troubles, and my alien visit just stopped being at the front of my mind. I find this really interesting in hindsight now, as before I used to be dumbfounded hearing about people who had ET experiences and how it didn't take over their life. How they didn't only talk about this constantly, quit their jobs and insurance and stare at the sky all day. But now I know. Life keeps happening. What am I going to do? I can't go looking for them in my 2002 Ford Focus. I got on with life. For maybe five years, the memory sits dormant in the noggin. Then one day, an old friend brings it up. He asks about the time I saw a UFO. It all comes back. The wonder, the sight of this huge craft hovering silently above the park. The annoyance I didn't go closer. That's when I started looking into more cases, and I came across the subject of today's pod. Some call Suffolk the Malibu of England. Don't know who, but I'm sure I've probably heard that at some point. Its beaches were recently named the dirtiest in England, but honestly, in my experience, most of our beaches are rough. It's not a childhood holiday if you haven't sliced open your foot on a shard of Stella Artois bottle on a beach in Devon. Anyway, Suffolk is on the east coast of England and is home to Rendlesham Forest. In December 1980, the area would become the setting for the most well-documented and detailed UFO sightings ever recorded. The incident is often called Britain's Roswell. Nick Pope, overall boss man of UFO stuff in the UK, says this was the Holy Grail, certainly Britain's most famous UFO case. Honestly, love the guy. Whenever there's talk of UFOs in the UK, they get Pope on the blower to give his two cents. He used to work for the MOD and is now all X-Files. The dream. Bentwater's Royal Air Force Base is around 70 miles northeast of London. Along with RAF Woodbridge, the main function of these two bases were to offer support to Europe should war break out again. Remember, the Cold War was sort of still big at the time, and Rocky IV and For Your Eyes Only weren't going to save us alone. At the time, the bases were run by 12,000 US Air Force personnel, one of the largest NATO complexes in Europe. What was stored at the base and how it operated is based on conjecture, and there is some secrecy surrounding it. However, most believe it to have stored nuclear weapons, evidenced by concrete bunkers and storage areas befitting of such devices. This supposed arsenal wasn't to be scoffed at, apparently it was a behemoth. Peter Robbins, an author and researcher on the base and the events that transpired, claims there may have been as much as 300,000 kilotons worth of bombage there. For context, that's 20,000 times as much dropped on Hiroshima in World War II. A world-ending amount of power in Suffolk, basically. Weird as I thought the only place in the UK akin to cataclysm was Blackpool. At 3am on 26th of December 1980, John Burroughs was patrolling the east gate of the airbase. He was 20 years old at the time, and had been with the force for two years. He remembers that night much like any other. It was cold, clear, with a little bit of fog, he recounts. His superior, Bud Stevens... A name like that makes me think he should be selling some off-the-head barbecue tongs on teleshopping. But alas, he was a big boy in the Air Force. Anyway, his superior, Bud Stevens, pulled up in a truck and asked John to accompany him for a ride into the forest. John obliged and off they trundled into the night. Stevens noticed a strange light in the woods, asking Burroughs if it was normal. Burroughs got a sense of danger, something wasn't right. He said there were different coloured lights, like a Christmas tree. They returned to the gate, slightly shaken. 
Something to note here is that these men were well trained and conditioned to remain calm in high pressure situations, so I find it quite strange they would be shaken up. They call Central Command who send 26-year-old Sergeant Jim Peniston. Now this is a bloke who is my age at the time, he's a sergeant with the Air Force, and I'm sat in a cupboard with notes about aliens, ghosts and depraved individuals strung up all around me. The podcast and life chose me, y'all. They send Sergeant Jim, who had been a security policeman with the force for seven years. He goes to the East Gate and is advised he will be told the situation when he gets there. He arrives within minutes and is told by Stevens and Burroughs about the strange disco in the woods. Peniston noted the same lights about 200 metres away in the woods, saying it looked like an aircraft crash. They got clearance to investigate a potential downed airplane, but nobody had heard a crash. Stevens, bringing some serious Close Encounters vibes, said something didn't crash, it landed. Maybe it's just me, but that gets me hella pumped. I'd be buzzing, man. Like It's like when you hear the opening to Dreams by Fleetwood Mac. Instant like, yeah. Stevens refused to go further. Burroughs and Peniston go towards the craft and get their vehicle as close as possible, stopping when the trees got too thick. They then approached on foot. About 50 metres from the site, they begin to get radio interference. Peniston recalls feeling an electrical charge in the air, saying, This was different. You could feel it on your clothes, your face, your hair. The closer they got, the less it looked like a crash. Burroughs said, We came into this clearing, and that's where there was this bright light, the whole area, blinding. As the light died ten feet away, Peniston snapped photos of the strange craft that had now become apparent before them. It measured roughly nine feet by eight feet high a galactic unit. There was no discernible front or back, no engines or cockpit to note. The surface was completely smooth. Peniston noted in his notepad as he studied the craft, no landing gear, no sound. As he wrote these observations, his handwriting became more and more erratic. One word repeatedly makes an appearance. Bruh. Nah, too early. One word. Unknown. In interviews, Peniston seems flustered even all these years later upon recollection, even confused. Remember, this is a military man. The detail of the erratic writing is almost movie-like and a very specific detail, adding to the authenticity of the account, at least in my warped grey matter. I'd be impressed that they would remember to fake this detail is all I'm saying. Peniston also seems a very subdued, stoic man, and I just find it hard to believe he's Ashton Kutcher and pulling a cosmic punct on us all. Never judge a book by its cover, but yeah, back to 1980. Peniston gets close enough to touch the craft. He said, The fabric of the craft was smooth, like glass, warm to touch, but not hot. There were lights and symbols embedded within. He copied them into his notepad, and they appear to be rune-like and strange shapes. They were supposedly around three feet wide. The craft then emitted a bright flash of light. Burroughs and Peniston took cover. The craft then lifted off the ground and backed away. The speed of the craft was incredible, described as the blink of an eye. After the craft had disappeared, the men see another flashing light in the woods. They give chase, but then realise it is Orford Ness Lighthouse around five miles away. Now remember this detail, as this flashy boy will come back later. Their radios are working again, and it is now 5am. They contact Central, and are told to rendezvous back at the East Gate. The men, understandably, were worried what to say. They were brought in for a debriefing. 
Peniston was reluctant to say much and remembers a commander issuing a thinly veiled warning along the lines of, Blue Book finished in 1969, some things are best left alone. What in the names of Mulder and Scully is going on in Suffolk, my dudes? Now, for those that don't know, Operation Blue Book was a secret investigation into UFOs and ETs in the 50s and 60s. Its main goal was to determine if ETs or these craft posed a threat to national security. There's some super interesting things you can find about it if you Google it or put it into a Bing if you're an absolute madman. There was also a cool show called Blue Books with one of the blokes from Game of Thrones in it. Give it a watch. Peniston couldn't sleep upon getting home. He returned to the site and noticed three impressions in the ground around 10 feet apart and a few inches deep. He takes cast of these ditches, which he still owns to this day. As weird as all this was, this was not the end of the incident. Two nights later, the craft returned. Deputy-based commander Charles Holt was present this night and makes his own record of events. On the 28th of December 1980, Holt attended an officer's party, which is mystifying in itself. Posh boy soiree, where you can only drink port and they only serve canapes. Bloody get the boys a pint and crack open some Doritos, blimey. Holt's parting is cut short when one of his men arrives looking distressed. The man was a former marine and simply proclaimed, it's back. Holt decides to investigate himself and assembles a three-man security team to head into the forest. A cordon has been set around the woods and the squad was told the UFO was no longer visible, but equipment was malfunctioning. The team take audio gear, night vision and a Geiger counter on their expedition. All the essentials for a peaceful rumble around the English countryside. They head into the forest and upon approaching the site, their lights stop working. Much like a couple of nights prior, their radios also give out. Holt began noticing gashes in the trees as if they'd been struck by a large object. The team take more photos and the Geiger counter registers high levels of radiation at the site of landing. In a moment befitting of Spielberg, the wildlife in the woods and surrounding farms came alive, all noisily voicing their alarm at something. A light in the trees is seen ahead, which is described almost like an eye by Holt. It was red, a dark centre, as though it were winking. It begins to move towards the group and leak a molten metallic-like substance as it zigzagged between the trees. The group gave chase into a nearby field. In the darkness of the field, the objects seemed to split into multiple pieces, fading. The men searched the field for debris or any evidence, but none was found. The object then reappears and zooms ahead above the group, emitting a beam towards the ground. There's audio recording of this encounter and Hulk can be heard saying, we're observing what appears to be a beam coming towards the ground. This is unreal. Definitely one word for it. The beam fell at the feet of the men. What do you even do in this situation? This isn't Arnie or Steven Seagal in some movie. These are probably some Air Force dudes reduced to being the cast of Monty Python, gawping at this mysterious craft. Was it watching them? Warning them? As quickly as the light appeared, it vanished. The craft then rushed towards the base, the beam intermittently flashing as if scanning the base, or the Armageddon's worth of boom-boom within. It's around this time that Holt's audio recorder runs out of tape. Tape, huh? How wonderfully quaint. The craft still loomed overhead, the group unsure what to do. They head back towards the base to meet others. Burroughs commented, they seemed weird, upset. A blue glow is seen in the field, and Burroughs and another man named Adrian Bestinza head towards it. Upon getting closer, 
Burroughs rushed towards the light and the glow vanished. However, to Bastinza, it looked like Burroughs had been consumed by the light and actually vanished. After this, the craft was not seen again. A comprehensive government investigation was already underway, of course. By January 1981, rumours swirled about the events that transpired. The investigation was extremely controversial. Almost all witnesses believed the primary mechanic of the investigation was damage control. Initially, it all seemed very by the numbers. Statements were taken, the men debriefed, happy days. Peniston says it was after this period where things turned slightly sinister. Further interviews were conducted by the OSI, described as essentially a discreet police force who wielded fairly unchecked power. Georgina Bruni, a scholar and author on the subject, says, They're there to police the Air Force. They can walk into the office of a general and arrest him. Peniston was quizzed and offered statements and sketches. He remembers little of the interview but suggests drugging and other shady tactics were used to elicit answers. Bustinza was also questioned and actually refuses to speak publicly about what happened to him. He confided to Georgina Bruni that he was held hostage until he was complicit and agreed it was all confusion and the lights were just from Orford Ness Lighthouse. Allegedly, they even threatened his life saying, bullets are cheap, a dime a dozen. Peniston concurred, we were told not to talk about it, it's top secret and that was it. According to Burroughs, it was obvious a cover-up was underway. Upon returning to his post, he saw major activity in the woods, a covert investigation. When prints of Peniston's pictures came back, they were blank or completely overexposed. These pictures were developed on-site at the base, so quite open to tampering by higher powers. Even Holt believes he was kept in the dark. He was asked to type up a memo and thought it would only be shared with British intelligence. He wrote of a strange metallic object, triangular in shape. Many of the finer details were left out and, in general, it was a rather vague recollection of the past few nights, certainly not meant for public consumption. The memo was then filed away. Rumours died down and for three years the public are kept in the dark. Return of the Jedi comes out, George Michael smashing it, life is good. Then, in 1983, a new witness emerges. On October 2nd, 1983, the news of the world, a few sheets of budget toilet paper masquerading as journalism. Seriously, it's not around anymore, but please go look it up if you want. It's an absolute farce of scandal and squalor, even for a tabloid. Anyway, the scumbag newspaper runs the headline, UFO lands in Suffolk, and that's official. The article claimed a UFO invaded airspace above the base and offered the leaked memo as evidence. Every paper in Britain ran the story for a week, which is pretty much still only match when England's playing football or the Royals spawn another sprog of privilege. Our new witness is Larry Warren, the man who leaked what became known as the Holt Memo. He was on the base at the time and said, I wanted to drag people by the hair through it and say, this happened. His story is much like the others to begin with. He was also stationed at Bentwaters and is asked to help with Holt's squad when they embark into the woods. His description of the craft is that it had no windows. It was this thing changing all the time. He describes it as almost being alive. The main part of his story that diverges is that he saw three small glowing entities emerge from the craft and communicate with senior officers. This was something that was known and there was protocol for, apparently. Cheeky little meets in the woods with space pals. Warren was pulled from the clearing and given no explanation. 
he is debriefed and shown films of UFOs and military operations dating back to the 1940s. The more he was questioned, the more his memory distorted. He says he was taken by what was essentially the men in black, experimented on by doctors, and remembers eating in a vast mess hall, alone. He isn't sure if these memories are real, or they were implanted by officials to confuse him. Warren's account frustrates the other witnesses, as they also want the truth, but explain his account is total fabrication. He's a bit of a tagger-on, if you will. He is the only one who claims to have seen beings, and none remember him being on site at the time. He, however, remains steadfast in his account. These discrepancies have proved to be a bane for researchers. In 2002, declassified files revealed new info about the events. British intelligence released files and confirmed they investigated. They also confirmed they don't believe the events were caused by a lighthouse or satellite. The files point out major clangers in the investigation. Some of the radar facilities were faulty at the time. Holt's memo incorrectly identifies the 27th of December as the major crux of events when it started on the 26th. This led to researchers looking at the wrong night. Here is where I feel it's appropriate to look at the alternative explanations. Retired Air Force and astronomer James McGaha, I think that's his name, McGaha, I'm let's be confident, James McGaha learned about the incident by accident. He was at the base working when he found out about what happened. He feels the lighthouse is the explanation for the events. Its light swinging through the trees may have confused people. However, like we mentioned earlier, this is identified and distinguished in the original statements. Georgina Bruni also says, I've done loads of research on the case, there's no way a lighthouse can travel five miles, go in and out of trees, shoot beams. Honestly, if there was, I'd be more amazed than if it were aliens. But honestly, Miss Bruni, absolute same. Bagaha also offers the notion a satellite would have been entering Earth's atmosphere and looked like a huge fireball. Which, like, yeah, I get that, but doesn't explain the whole bloody glass UFO with strange writing all over it. Along with lighthouses and satellites, other theories have been put forward. The BBC reported that a former US policeman named Kevin Cond took responsibility for the events. Allegedly, he drove through the forest in a police car with modified lights to freak people out, which, honestly, big up to Kev, absolutely hilarious. No conclusive proof has been found that this was on the same night in question, however. Brian Dunning, an author and sceptic, discredits the event, saying, Separate pieces of poor evidence don't aggregate together into a single piece of good evidence. He also suggests the details of death threats and interrogations are made up for TV. Because, you know, the US government doing those sorts of things would be, of course, complete nonsense. A Fen explanation did briefly have some life in it. In December 2018, UFO researcher David Clark reported that it might have actually all been a revenge plot by the SAS on the USAF. Apparently, the SAS parachuted into the base one night to test security at the site. They were captured, beaten and called unidentified aliens. A sick burn, apparently. The SAS staged their own little alien event in retaliation by using rigged lights and helium balloons. All this being said, Clark's investigation concluded this story itself was a hoax. Officially, the case was closed and deemed as no threat to national security. A strange craft checking out all your nukes suggests otherwise, but, you know, I'm just a podcaster. The mistakes and missing information may be pivotal to solving the mystery. 
Our boy Nick Pope says, if you don't use the first 24 hours in an investigation, your chances of success diminish rapidly. He also adds, I consider this case to be bigger than Roswell. This could be the biggest UFO case of all time. Peniston and Burroughs actually suffered PTSD after the events, and Holt continues to press on for the truth. Fairly recently, he has said he found new witnesses who operated radar who saw the object go across their 60-mile scope in two or three seconds, thousands of miles an hour. They watched it and observed it go into the forest where we were, he says. Over 40 years later, we still don't know for sure what happened on those Christmas nights back in 1980. It will be an eternal mystery like Tommy Wiseau or what Meatloaf would not do for love, or when exactly is love on time. I really hope you've enjoyed the ride though. Like I said, I love a bit of aliens and we'll be covering all sorts on this pod. Please remember to go and give the Instagram and Twitter a follow at John Doe and Co pod. Rate, review and subscribe on your podcast and app. And if you're top draw, head on over to Patreon at patreon.com forward slash John Doe and Co pod and donate. There'll be bonus content for Patreon people, including extra episodes, virtual socials and any funds will be going back into the pod to get me some better gear and more time for research. I'll of course also give you a mega shout out on a future episode. It would mean a lot to me and thank you so much. Feel free to DM me any suggestions for future episodes as always. So we've encountered aliens from another world and now we're going to be busting the undead in ours. Ghost o'clock. Next episode is about the ancient Ram Inn, said to be one of the most haunted locales in England and just down the road from where I'm from. The locals around here are scary enough, so the ideal of spectral ones is pretty bloody spooky. Hope to see you there. Thanks for being such a good company. Peace out.